0: Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus. It's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community.
1: Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Joe and I'm one of the leaders here. We're so glad that you're here. Something that we do every week is study the Bible together, and we're going to do that tonight. But before we do that, I want to take a moment on behalf of the pastoral staff and all of the staff here at Renaissance, and thank you for everyone who said how much you appreciate us during Pastor Appreciation Month with your cards, your letters, your gifts, gift cards, notes, hugs, treats, all kinds of things. We feel very appreciated for that, so thank you so much. It means a lot to be able to be a part of a church that is just so great. So thank you for that. Pastor Jeff mentioned last week that it's a little bit intimidating sometimes to, to lead a church that's full of people that are smarter than you. And, and I would say amen to that. Uh, it, it's intimidating to be in a church that I'm a leader in that's full of people who are smarter than me. And, and I look around and this is a church full of people who are cooler than me. And all of you are like, yeah, exactly. There's not many better looking than me, but that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. But something that we do every week is we study the Bible together, and we're going to be doing that tonight in 2 Peter. But before we turn there, I want to take some time reading out of Mark chapter 9, because what we'll read in Mark chapter 9 is going to give us some background to what we read in 2 Peter. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll put the words up on the screen. Or you could find a hardcover black Bible underneath the seat around you and turn to page 844 in that Bible. But here's what we'll do. I'll read a little bit. I'll make some comments as we go. And then we'll pray and ask God to help us understand as we get ready to study 2 Peter. Peter. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says this Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Pause real quick right here. Peter, James, and John are a quarter of the group of guys we call the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. And these guys followed Jesus everywhere he went. They saw All of his miracles, they watched him heal people who were sick. They watched him raise people from the dead. They watched him open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. It was commonly believed that in those days, the the disciples or the followers of a rabbi, which is what Jesus was, he was a rabbi. The followers of a rabbi would follow a rabbi everywhere he went so that they could observe his life. And they wanted to observe his life to see all the little things that he would do. Because if he does this a certain way, he knows God much better than we do, so we should do the same thing he does. And so if he said, prayed a certain prayer over a biscuit, if he prayed a certain prayer over some gravy, hallelujah, he, they, would, they would listen closely to those prayers, and they would repeat those prayers so that they could be just like their rabbi. They would watch the way he walked through a door, and they would walk through the door the same way. It's even said, crazy thing, that they would listen as he's going to the bathroom in case he prayed a certain prayer after he flushed. So they could do the same thing. It's weird, but they're all in his life and in his business and watching and observing everything that he did. But Peter and James and John were kind of part of the inner circle of the disciples. There are moments that they got to be part of that the other nine did not get to be part of. There's a moment where a little girl was dead and Jesus took Peter, James, and John into her room and he raised her from the dead and they saw that. The night Jesus was arrested, he takes all of his disciples to a garden to pray And he takes Peter, James, and John to a further part, deeper into the garden, so they can pray with him more closely. They're part of the inner circle. And he says to them here, listen, guys, we're going to go camping this weekend. We're going to go to the mountains, and we're going to go camping. And while we're camping, I'm going to show you who I really am. Which is interesting, because they should have an idea who Jesus really is at this point. They've seen him do all these miracles and all of these great things. In fact, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that God has sent to the earth to rescue us from our sins. And Jesus is like, oh, you're right, but there's so much more to me than that. So he's like, let's go camping, guys. And while we're camping, I'm going to show you some secrets about me. I'm going to show you who I really am. And so he takes them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. We don't use this word transfigured in our everyday language. What it simply means is that he was morphed into something different before them. He transformed, if you will, before them. He goes full-on God mode here on the mountain and begins to shine and becomes radiant. His clothes became radiant, verse 3 says, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. They begin to see him reveal the majesty of who he is, not just a man who can do really cool things by healing people, but he is, in fact, God's son. And they get a a glimpse at that here on this mountain. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. It's hard for us to fully understand what it would have meant for them to see Elijah and Moses with Jesus. But but just know this, Elijah and Moses represented or personified the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures for them. Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. In fact, there are many times in the Bible where the Old Testament is simply called the law and the prophets. They see the personification of the Bible standing there with Jesus. Jesus, it's hard for us to grasp just how important that would be. But imagine you're a web developer and your boss says to you, hey, I want to have you over tonight for dinner. And I'm having some other friends over. I'd like for you to get to know them. And you get to his house and you open the door and he leads you to his kitchen. And at his kitchen table, there's Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And you suddenly realize your boss runs in circles that are much greater than you will ever run in. This is what Jesus is saying here to his disciples with Elijah and Moses standing amongst them. He's like, you guys don't even know the crew that I hang with, okay? (laughs) I'm important, is what he's revealing to them. I'm I'm not just a guy who heals people. I'm not just someone who, who does good. I'm not just a man. I'm, in fact, God in human flesh, and this transfiguration proves that to them. And Peter, flabbergasted, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Good on you, Peter. (laughs) Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And that seems like a really dumb thing to say. And Mark thinks so too. And he says he did not know what to say for they were terrified. So he says this silly thing, let's make three tents for you guys while you're here. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice Came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. Only here on this mountain, they see Jesus transfigured. He shines, he reveals his majesty and his glory to them. They see the law and the prophets, the personification of them standing there with them. And all of a sudden they're gone and the only person left is Jesus. And God says to them, this is my son, listen to him. It's it's his words that we pay attention to. It's the things that he has to say that are most Important to us. And I want, I want to dive into that idea tonight. But before we do, I want us to pause and, and pray together and ask God to help us understand what we're going to study. So would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us the Bible. I pray this every time I'm up here. I thank you for the Bible. And Lord, I am so thankful for the Bible. What would we do without it? What would we do without this record of your dealings with people throughout history What would we do without this picture of who you are? I pray that that's what we'll learn tonight. We'll learn who you are, and in doing so, we can love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. This week was a very important holiday for all of us on Wednesday, October 31st. Go ahead and say it with me. Happy... Exactly. The heathen spoke over here. Somebody knew it was Reformation Day on Wednesday. Now, for those of you who don't know what Reformation Day is, that's the day we commemorate when Martin Luther took the 95 theses and nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Castle, sparking what we call the Protestant Reformation. Historians, in fact, say that this moment was part of the beginning of the modern era. It changed the world. It's partly why we worship the way we do today. It's partly why we value the Bible so much. It's partly why each of us can own a copy or two dozen copies of the Bible for ourselves because of what happened on Reformation Day. And on Reformation Day, in honor of my Lutheran friends, I texted some of them and said, happy Reformation Day. Some of my Lutheran friends are here tonight. And what I realized in that moment was that all the Lutheran friends that I texted all come to Renaissance And then I began to think about that, that that Renaissance is, is a family that's made up of a lot of different faith backgrounds. We have a lot of Lutherans who come to Renaissance. That's awesome. We have a lot of Charismatics and Pentecostals who come to Renaissance. We have a lot of Methodists who come to Renaissance, Presbyterians who come to Renaissance, Catholics who come to Renaissance. We even have people who come to Renaissance who have no idea what they believe yet. And we think all of that is amazing. We will welcome anyone into our family here, except Baptists. We don't want Baptists. I'm just, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. My mom is a Baptist. I am half Baptist. Baptists are welcome here. But I started to think about that this week, about the differences in denominations that exist within the church and what what has happened over the centuries is that there are groups of followers of Jesus who who, over time, some of them would begin to emphasize one aspect of the faith over another. And and in doing so, they would feel led to go begin another church. And and that church sometimes turned into a movement that turned into a denomination. Sometimes they were kicked out of their church, and and because of that, they turned into a different denomination. And, And they sprung up over time because of the different things they would emphasize. For example, Charismatics, Pentecostals love to emphasize. God's Holy Spirit filling us up and and being very expressive in worship. My Baptist friends love to emphasize sharing the gospel with people, sharing the truth and love of Jesus with others. My Lutheran friends, they love to emphasize the necessity of the Bible and the importance that it has in the church and in our lives. And that's something that's very important to us here at Renaissance. It's something that we emphasize every week. A Sunday will not go by that you won't see us open up the Bible and teach from it. It's so important to all that we do because if we're going to know who God is, we have to go to this book to find out. And that's what we want to know. We want to know who Jesus is. And so we go to this book every week. It's of incredible importance to us. And it's so important that we have something like the Bible to ground our faith and our understanding in because if we don't have an objective source like the Bible— what we'll end up doing is leaning on our subjective experiences to determine our understanding of who God is. For example, if things are going really well for me, you might hear me say things like this. God is really blessing me right now. God is so good. You can't believe how good my life is going. God is so good and he's blessed me so much. And that's all well and good. We should give God praise every time good things come to us. In fact, the Bible says that every good gift comes from the Father above But the danger in that can be that if I'm always, when things are good, saying, God is so good, God is really blessing me right now. If things turn bad for me, it will become really easy for me to stop talking about how good he is and to stop thinking that he's blessing me. When in reality, no matter what I'm experiencing, God is still good. Whether things are good for me or not. Whether I feel blessed, God has still blessed me whether I'm getting new or good things or not. The Bible says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in his son, Christ Jesus. So if I desire to be blessed, all I have to do is look back to what we commemorated tonight, that moment when Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. He has blessed us in that, and that is all we need. But if I rely on my experiences to dictate what I know and understand about God, What I know and understand about God will change when I have an experience that contradicts my prior experience. When I was a little kid, and if there are little kids in the room, I want to encourage you parents, you might want to take them out for a moment because I'm going to talk about Santa Claus. (laughs) When when I was a little kid, I believed in Santa Claus. At some point, at maybe six or seven years old, it dawns on me. If, if I give one Christmas list to mom and dad and a different Christmas list to Santa Claus, I'll get twice as many presents on Christmas. <laughs> and so a couple of years go by, and Santa Claus is not coming through. And I begin to get angry about that. I'm like, I'm not on the naughty list that I know of. I've never gotten coal. I've been pretty nice. If I'm bad, tell me what to do to be good to get these presents. And then I begin to realize, wait a minute, what if this guy whose lap I sit on once a year isn't really going to bring me presents, whether I'm good or not, no matter what. So I go to my mom one day, I'm like maybe eight years old. And, and I'm like, mom, I, I don't like Santa Claus. And this is in like June. I'm stewing, I'm stewing about this all year long. I don't like Santa Claus, mom. She goes, why not? Because he never gives me anything I ask for. She doesn't know that I had separate lists, by the way. <laughs> my mom's like, that's very ungrateful, Joe. I'm like, well, I, he's the one who's leaving me out here. And then finally, when my father decides to tell me the truth, because I was going to be graduating high school, and he's like, it's time for you, <laughs> it's time for you to know now, Joe. You're going to become a man. It's time for you to know Santa isn't real. I was like, bro, I've known this for years. See, I've had these two lists that I've been tricking him with. See, when I was a little kid, my experience told me that Santa Claus was real because I would tell him, hey, I want these things. And mom and dad would say, what did you ask Santa Claus for? And I would tell them what I asked Santa Claus for. And then when I began to change that, when my experience changed and Santa's no longer following through, my belief in him fell apart, and I I realized him for what he was. The danger of leaning on our experiences to determine our understanding of who God is is that if things go bad for me, if my life gets shaken and rattled, I might no longer believe that Jesus is who he said he was if I'm just depending on what he does for me to prove himself to me. I would argue that Peter experienced something like this if we turn over to second peter chapter 1 and for those of you who are using the hardback bible you can find that on page 1018 in verse 16 peter says this we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ we didn't make that stuff up that we told you about jesus we weren't telling tall tales But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him with our very eyes. The Apostle John, the one that was with Peter and James, he said in one of his letters, he said, I've seen him, I've felt him. I know that he was alive. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter said, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard This very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's like I was there. I saw him transfigured. I heard God say, this is my beloved son. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. I saw the miracles he performed. I saw him raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. I saw him feed thousands of people with this little kid's snack one day. I know who he is because I saw him with my own two eyes. And guess what? A couple weeks after I saw him transfigured, I denied him. See, the night Jesus was arrested, he was led away, and his disciples all fled. They deserted him until at some point they realized maybe we should figure out what's happening to Jesus, so they sneak up on what's essentially police headquarters, and they're, they're peeking in through the windows, and while Peter's warming his hands at a fire that night, a little girl comes up to him and tugs on his shirt and says, hey, mister, are you one of those guys? who was with Jesus, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? You were always with Jesus. I saw him and I saw you with him. And in this moment, worried that if if they realize I was with Jesus, they might arrest me too. The Bible tells us that he essentially cusses this little girl out and says, I was never with him. Though just a few weeks before he saw him transfigured with his own eyes, he knows who Jesus is, and yet his experiences were not enough to ground his faith in a moment that he was shaken. Peter goes on to tell us in verse 19 we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The words of the prophets are greater than my eyewitness testimony. The words of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. What he's saying is the scriptures, the Bible is a greater thing to rely upon than anyone's eyewitness testimony. Peter Peter says, including my own, because guess what? That wasn't enough for me, guys. We cannot allow the things that we experience in life to dictate whether or not we have faith in who Jesus is. We must continually go back to this book that God has given us to show us who he is. Why can we do that? Why is this book trustworthy? Why can we rely on it so much? Why did Peter, James, and John rely on it so much? Why does Peter say the words of the prophets are better than my own eyewitness testimony? We can't even fully understand just how important the scriptures would have been to Peter, James, and John in their culture at that time. The scriptures were held in such high regard. It was believed that if you picked up a copy of the scriptures, you couldn't touch anything else until you'd washed your hands. You you couldn't pick up the Bible and read it and then go make supper. You had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. They had so much regard for the scriptures. And so he looks at that and he says, that's more important than my eyewitness testimony. And here's why. Verse 20, he says, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What he's saying is the guys who wrote down the words in the Bible, they weren't making up the things they were writing down. What happened was these men spoke from God, verse 21. They spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit. This phrase carried along carries with it the idea of a sailboat unfurling its sails and letting the wind catch them and propel them onward to its destination. In a sense, the men who wrote down the things that are in the Bible, they opened up their minds to God's Holy Spirit to blow into them and to propel their pens to write the words on the page. And now I don't have time to do this topic justice. There are entire college degrees you can get about this very topic in and of itself. But just know this, the Bible tells us that God breathed into the men who wrote the scriptures. He inspired them to write the words down. And what we have on these pages are God's very words through the hands of these human instruments. That tells me a couple things. One, that he treasures us if he's so willing to use us to communicate his words to other people. He treasures humans. It also tells me this, that he treasures his words so much that he would want them to be written down so they'd be preserved for generations and generations and eventually be picked up by everyone who would so desire to know who he is is God inspired these words. And so when we read them, we're not just reading good literature. We're reading the very words of God on paper. And Peter says in verse 19, because of this, because, because the scriptures are, are more important than any experience we have, be, because God has in fact inspired the scriptures, we would do well to pay attention to them. We would do well to to turn our attention towards the scriptures and to actually look into it. Have you ever been listening to someone but not really paying attention to them? Like most of you are doing right now. <laughs> I get it. I do it all the time. How about this? You're watching some... Movie and you're 15, 20 minutes in, and you're like, what the heck is going on? I have not been paying attention. I've been on Instagram and I've been texting. I'm lost in the plot. How about this? I do this all the time. I'll be reading something and I'll be like a chapter and a half through the book and have no idea what is happening in the book. And all of a sudden I'm dropped into the middle of a story and I'm like, How did we get here? <laughs> it's so easy to to read or to listen and not really pay attention. And Peter's saying, it, it, when we, when we come to this book, when we come to the scriptures, we, we need to pay attention to it. We need to actually focus on what is being said. We need to be intentional about it, he says, because it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. This word that's translated lamp does not mean any kind of natural light. It literally ha- carries with it the sense of a, of a light that has been lit by a human, like a candle or a lamp. And what good is a lamp unless you turn it on? What good is this book if it only sits on my bookshelf all the time, if it only sits on my nightstand all the time? What, what good is this book if it's just a holder for my remote control? We have to intentionally engage with it. We have to make time to do it. And that means more than just engaging with the Bible on Sunday when I come to church. It means more than listening to a podcast and saying, okay, I've listened to the Bible because I've heard someone else teach it. What we need to do is open up the Bible for ourselves, turn on that lamp, and let it shine. He says it's like a lamp that shines in a dark place. Have you ever gotten dressed in the dark before? I do it all the time. And when I do it, this is what happens. I end up wearing two different kinds of socks. Now, I justify it by saying they're both striped, and I swear to you I have another pair like this at home, but it happens to me all the time. Whenever I get dressed in the dark, which I do all the time, crazy enough, I end up looking like a mess, and I go about my day without even checking a mirror, which is, it's hard enough when I do check a mirror. Why wouldn't I look in the mirror? But I do that, and I look like a mess, and I go around, and people are like, Joe, are you doing okay? You look really rough today. I just got dressed in the dark, that's all. Ain't no thing. I wonder, I wonder how many of us are looking at our lives and saying, man, my life is really a mess right now. Th- things are really disheveled for me right now. And, and I wonder if we could maybe consider if we'd turn on a lamp and shine some light on our lives, that, that maybe we'd be able to clean up the mess that we're in. Now, I'm never the guy to say, if things are going wrong for you, if you were to come to me and say, Joe, things are really bad for me right now, will you pray for me? All of these terrible things have happened. The last thing you will hear me say is, you need to read your Bible more. And if you ever say that to anyone, stop doing that. It's bad advice to just write someone off as though their problems will be fixed if they just read their Bible more. I will, however, say that those times in my life that I am depressed, when I am feeling distant from God, when I am feeling cranky and angry, when my coworkers have trouble being around me, and you can ask them, some of them have trouble being around me at times, that I can trace my problems back to a lack of the Bible, a lack of having placed this in an important place in my life. Well, am I saying that if I read the Bible, all my problems will be fixed? Oh, heck no. Sometimes they just begin. But what I'm saying is this, if if I read the Bible and let the lamp of God's truth shine on my life, what will happen is this, as it shines in a dark place, some of the dingy things I didn't realize were there will actually come to the surface and I'll be able to deal with the stuff that's really going on inside that's actually causing my life to be a mess. See, the mess is just a symptom of the stuff that's inside. You don't really know what's underneath the fridge until you turn a flashlight on and look underneath there. We, we won't really know what's going on in our heart unless we turn this lamp on and begin to read God's words and let them illuminate some of the mess that is happening inside of us. He says, you'll do well to pay attention to this book because it's a lamp that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's kind of a poetic and weird phrase, the morning star rising in your hearts. And I was a little confused as to what that means, the morning star rising in your hearts, What does that mean? Well, a very important principle of studying the Bible is this, that the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. And so if there's a word or a phrase that I have trouble understanding, the first thing I should do is to find out how is this word or phrase used in other places in the Bible? Morning star rising in your heart. What's he talking about here? Well, in Revelation 22:16, 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, I'm the bright and the morning star. What Peter's saying is this, if if you pay attention to this book, if you let this lamp shine in your life, Jesus will fill your heart. And that's really what we want anyway. He's the one who can clean up our mess. He's the one who can change us. He's the one who could fix us. I can read this book till I'm blue in the face, but if I don't meet Jesus while I'm doing it, it's not gonna do me any good. Jesus has to be the goal. If we thumb back to Mark chapter nine, Verse 7, it says, A cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. When I open up the Bible, my goal has to be at all times, how am I going to get to Jesus only? How how am I going to find Jesus only? only in this book because he's the one we want to know. He's the one who can lead my life. He's the one who can help me. He's the one who can rescue me. He's the one who can change me. Jesus was having a conversation with the religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, listen, guys, I know that you've spent all of your lives studying the scripture. In fact, I know that you have most of the Bible memorized, and you search the scriptures over and over because you want to find eternal life in them. But what you don't realize is this. Eternal life is standing right in front of you. Jesus said it's possible to look into the Bible and completely miss the point which we will do every time if we're not looking for him. If I'm looking for myself, if I'm looking for an agenda for my company or for my nation, if I'm looking for a way to support my own ideals, I'll miss the point every time. What we consistently look for in the Bible and find truth in is Jesus. I think that's one reason why Renaissance gathers so many people from different faith backgrounds is because we don't try to push any certain dogma or doctrine or agenda. All we care about is Jesus. We can have different types of beliefs in the same room, and we can still worship Jesus together. We can have Catholics and Methodists and Baptists, yes, even Baptists in the same Room and still worship Jesus together because he's the point of it all. Anyway, it doesn't matter what we disagree on. If we agree on this, is Jesus the son of God who gave his life for me and rose from the dead? Then we're brothers and sisters. We're family. Jesus alone is what truly matters to us. In just a few moments, the band is going to return. And when they do, we'll have... An opportunity to begin to sing songs of worship to God again. And during that time, we, we always carve that time out in the service to, to pause and reflect about the things that we've talked about. And, and I wonder if there's a couple of different people, types of people in the room. Maybe some of us are like this. Maybe some of us are really good at reading the Bible. But sometimes we miss a day and we feel really guilty about it. Like, man, I, I didn't read my Bible today. Oh, God, God must be upset with me as though there's a database angel keeping track on a heavenly Excel spreadsheet. And, and like, he puts a red X on a day that I miss reading my Bible. It's not who God is. Or some of us are, are like this. We, we imagine every time we pick up the Bible and read it that we're, we're somehow putting another badge on this heavenly sash that will be given once we walk through the gates of heaven. That's not who God is either, and I'm going to ask that we would consider, if we're in one of those places that God would remove, that Jesus would come along and topple the pride that exists in our hearts, because I think that's the root of those two things, is, is our pride, that he would overturn the pride that we have. Secondarily, I imagine there are more of us in the room who are like this, who, who have trouble reading the Bible at all for various reasons. And maybe it's because you find it difficult to understand. Maybe it's because you find it hard to read. And that's a really common excuse. And that's really all it is, is an excuse. Because here's the thing, God's not looking for theologians. He's looking for followers. There are so many things in the Bible... I do not understand. And I'll tell you this. If you come across something that you don't understand, you are more than welcome to ask me at any point. And I would be happy to tell you that I don't know either. (laughs) There's so much in here I don't understand. There's so much in here that people have have been debating for 2,000 years. There's so much in here that is confusing and difficult and hard for us to understand, but it makes it hard for us to read because we care more about those little details than we care about meeting the God that the book is all about. If we forget that this is first and foremost about Jesus, of course it will be hard to understand. But if I open it up and I seek to know him through its pages, then it won't matter if I'm confused by what I read because I'll have had a great conversation with a living person who loves me. Maybe some of us need to read the Bible more. Maybe some of us are hesitant to read the Bible because we're afraid of what that lamp is going to show to us when it shines in our lives. And we're worried that if, man, every time I open up the Bible, it confronts me in my sin, and I don't really like that. I can confess that that's a reason why I have pushed it to the side many times. But what we don't realize is that God is never standing before us with a hammer saying, I want to show you what you've done wrong so I can really give it to you. He says, I want, I want to show you where you've gone wrong so I can heal you of what that's done to you. Maybe some of us need to begin reading the Bible a little bit. I'm going to pray for us, and the band will begin playing again. And, and during that time, let's examine whether or not we're in one of those camps. So would you pray with me, Lord? We are so thankful for all that you have done and all that you have given to us through your son, Jesus. We're so thankful for the testimony of the Bible that shows us who you are, that shows us your truth, that shows us the light of your love. But I pray that as you're speaking to each of us tonight, some of us are are needing to be set free from pride that we have. Some of us are needing to be set free from fear that we have that you're upset with us because of our failures. Some of us are needing, encouraged that we don't have to know it all. We just, we just need a desire to know you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us as in, in our place of need and show us, show us what it is that we need to do to submit to you and let you rule and lead us. We thank you, Lord, that that's who you are. You're a good leader who loves us so much. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendecatur.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.